Hello, friend. Welcome to episode 15. Episode 15! Of Sally's Performing Arts Lab podcast. For those of you who are subscribers, this episode is coming to you on Tuesday, September 19th, instead of Monday night, like I promised. I'm your host, Sally Adams, and I promise to be on time next week. I've taught people how to produce original work for the stage for over 30 years, and if you're late to my rehearsal, you'll get the stink eye. If you are giving me the stink eye right now, I deserve that. Please forgive me, and go to sallypal.com to find my blog and my podcast. You'll also find Sally Pal on Acast, Blueberry, Google Play, iTunes, Overcast, Player FM, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and, of course, my host platform, Podbean. Be sure to check out Podbean the week of November 27th, when the Sally Pal podcast will be a featured show. Thanks to those of you who are sharing the blog and the podcast. If you sign up for the mailing list, you'll get a free insert for your creator's notebook. It's a list of the people you'll need to help you produce your show, along with some great links to more in-depth information. And I sneaked in a couple of cartoons of my own with some public domain artwork. Today's episode is an interview with University of Tulsa professor Michael Wright. Michael is a theater director, actor, teacher, playwright, and spoken word artist. Michael's work plays with form, audience interaction, and uncommon theatrical venues. He is the author of Playwriting in Process, Playwriting Masterclass, and Sensory Writing for Stage and Screen. You'll find links to his work in the show notes and the blog. Michael received awards for his work as a teacher of playwriting from the Association for Theater and Higher Education and the Kennedy Center. You'll hear us mention the Tulsa Artists Coalition Gallery and playwright David Blakely, the playwright-in-residence for Tulsa's Heller Theater, who'll be featured in a later interview. We also talked about Sam Shepard and his play True West. Michael also mentioned the Women Works program for female playwrights in graduate school. I'll include some links in the blog. Be sure to listen until the end of the interview for concise advice from the interview and words of wisdom from George. Let's get started. Every day I gotta stop for a minute. Think about how good my life is with you in it. Every day I wanna stop and think about you. Thank you so much, first of all, for being a guest on Sally Pal. It's great to have you on the show. Sure. Happy to be here. You have a really amazing history, both as a writer and educator, and your son is doing all kinds of stuff now, too, which tells me that you've passed on your love of theater to him. He's mostly doing open mic nights and performing on guitar and ukulele, and he's getting out there and performing at some of the clubs around town, and I'm very proud of him. Isn't that fun to get to go out and see your own kids perform? Absolutely. And that's one of the ways that we got to meet. You have been involved with the library plays, and my kids had plays in there. And I think your son was one of the actors in a couple of those. He was indeed. Tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into theater. And then maybe that'll lead us into talking about passing that along. In a lot of ways, it kind of saved my spirit. I was in high school. I had dropped away from all of the special classes where you know, you're in with all the big brains. And I just hated it. So I, uh, took, I was taking an English class with, you know, quote, regular, unquote, kids. And we were doing theater that year, and the teacher kept calling on me to read parts in the stuff that we were reading aloud. And that got interesting for me. And then I was inspired by one of the plays that we read, The Zoo Story, uh, that would all play. I wrote a short play 
And I showed it to her, and she really liked it, and she gave it to one of the teachers in the school who did theater, and she gave it to some friends in town, and they actually did a little mini-production of it in this guy's living room. He actually had stage lights in his mini stage lights in his <laughs> living room, and they did a performance of it for me and family and friends, and I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> that was pretty much the end of whatever normalcy my life was going to have. And when I started college the next year, I really wanted to just keep on learning how to be a playwright, but the guy that was directing the show said, well, I could really use you as an actor. We're doing a huge show. It was Waiting for Lefty. Then I got the bug for that. It's been that way pretty much ever since. I've followed my instinct and fallen into things. And you do a fair amount of directing, and you also do film work. Well, I haven't done much film work lately. I've done some theater directing, but mostly it's been my own project. I haven't directed around town in quite a while. I just got tired of the difficulty of finding an exciting venue to be in and doing the kind of work I really want to do. The last thing I directed, in fact, in town was was Waiting for Lefty, of all things. And we had a great time with it. I chose that place specifically because of all the anti-union sentiment that was going around back in that time. This is pre-Obama. I write and direct a show every year for my own interest in whatever topic I'm pursuing that I do at the uh, Tulsa Artist Coalition Gallery downtown. I'm very interested in working in non-theatrical spaces to do theater work. And I just did my fourth one there this summer, and I'm planning to apply uh, for time to do a, another one next year. Isn't that a wonderful space? Yeah, yeah, it's a great space. You know, you're in an art gallery, you're not in a theater. One of the things that I'm doing each time I do a show there is to do it an entirely different chair setup so that the audiences are experiencing the process of being at a play in a very, very different way. Are you playing with environmental theater? Basically, it's just a space with four walls, and so uh, we do kind of create a set environment. Um, yeah, maybe, uh, certainly in a couple of the pieces, it's been more about the environment. The first thing I did there was just where you would go in and essentially be uh, in a one-on-one -on -one with an actor. Uh, it was about a guy who had maybe disappeared, and you went into a booth, and you met the missing persons detective, and you went into another booth, and you met the guy who claimed that this guy had disappeared, and then you went in and met the psychic. And so it was one-on-one. On one performance and then one wall of the gallery I turned into an evidence wall with maps and photos and charts and all kinds of stuff like that. So it was like, like a police investigation, but also very much a theatrical experience. I got tired of working at the Performing Arts Center, losing money on shows, and I got tired of working on conventional materials. So these pieces are collage, they're pastiche, they're just a variety of approaches to storytelling, but also talking about topics through the use of actors and by interaction with the audience. In the last two, the audience have been given notepads and little golf pencils, and we've occasionally asked them to respond with writing something down, and then we read out what they wrote. Like we asked them in the show before this one, what would be their idea of a perfect death or what would be their idea of a more exuberant celebration of birth than we typically do because we don't really get too far into ritual with birth in America anyway, you know. And it was fun. It was like they began co-writing <laughs> the script without realizing that that's what they were doing. So I really love doing this and I learned a lot from doing it and had a lot of fun doing it. You sound like you're really bringing theater alive by doing that, making the audience aware 
that the actors know they're there. Yeah, it's such a small space. There's nowhere. I mean, you can't hide in the audience. You're not sitting in the dark. They're right there talking to you. You remember that play that David wrote based on the monologues of the homeless people that we did? That was such a great experience, but it was the first time I had done that kind of work outside of festival settings. It was... (laughs) intense, but I loved it. You threw yourself into it, as did the other actors, and I was skeptical. I didn't know how it would go. I was afraid that it would be too in your face for the audience, but a Mm -hmm. lot of people were like, yeah, this is cool. I'll stick around and see what they have to say. I think the thing that I was worried we would run into is that people would feel duped, that there would be some people that would think, oh, well, you're not really a homeless person. Do you ever run into things where your audience walks away feeling like, oh, that wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Well, they never know what it's going to be when they come to the TAC gallery stuff, because it's always, it's different each year, and they come in and the chairs are in different kinds of arrangements. And I think the people that come back year after year to see it come in hoping for yet again something unique, and they always get it, so I'm happy. And the ones that have never been there, they they walk away going, hey, wow, this is is really different. I'll come again. Right, exactly. I wrote these pieces, I had it printed on transparencies and then hung about a foot away from the wall so that the words were readable right there, but they were also projected somewhat onto the wall behind as shadows. And so it was kind of like, is this real or not? Are the shadows of the words real or not? When I decided I'd try to do my first thing at the TAC Gallery, they want you to propose with an idea. And I was like, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> you know? so, so that was the first thing I thought of. And then once I had that that idea down, then I really had to build the show around it. You sound like a really visual playwright. Would you say that? I am. I am. I mean, I do come from something of a film background. Most of my, I'd say 95% of my life has been spent doing theater, but I worked on low-budget film as assistant director when I was in grad school, and I worked on Live and Let Die as a production assistant when it was filming in New Orleans. And, you know, you learn on the, you know, right on the ground, you learn a heck of a lot about how films are made, and the impact of the way in which they'll do simple things like even just lighting an interior. There's a plane chase through a hangar at one point, and I watched them setting the lights without turning them on, and they they lit them up, and it was like, bang, it was a movie. (laughs) It was just incredible. I thought, wow, these guys really, really know their stuff. That definitely informed me. But, I, you know, I think coming from directing, I think that's where the visual sensibility got, got evolved. Tell me what you do when you're working with students, because I know there are a lot of students who bring ideas to the theater that are very movie-driven, if you know what I mean. Like, we're going to have a new set every five minutes. I really try to make sure they understand the creative potential of theater. I don't want them to hold back on what they think are the visual possibilities, but then we talk about I mostly use an example from Paula Vogel's wonderful play, How I Learned to Drive. She doesn't want a car on stage. It's just two chairs side by side. There's a moment when the uncle is molesting his niece, and she doesn't want that done as the man touching the woman. His hand's out in front as if he's touching her in front of himself and her reacting as if she's being touched. And so we don't have to go through the embarrassment of thinking, okay, well, that's an actual girl being touched by an actual older man. So it's all very much how do you go about creating the environment for something like that where you really work on the art on the audience's imagination 
And when I was at Tulane, I worked with an off-campus company for two of the three years that I was there, and they just had formed and put together a company, and I was among the people that joined the company at the outset. And we did all of our work in a little tiny space that on the weekends was the puppet playhouse. And then when we were there performing, it it became the people playhouse. (laughs) I think everybody (laughs) thought we were a bunch of commies or something, but it was just, they're the puppets, we're the people, you know, it was very straightforward. And it was so small that if you made a broad gesture, you smack somebody in the face. But we did all kinds of experimental theater there, but we also did The Three Sisters. If you can imagine doing The Three Sisters in a space not much bigger than the TAC Gallery. So I learned a tremendous amount about how to take the greatest advantage of space and of the imaginative potential. And mm-hmm. I, I try to convey that to my students at all, at all points, you know. Did you apply some of those same techniques from how I learned to drive? Very much, very much. A lot of what we were doing was very atmospheric in the sense that you might not know what's going on intellectually, but you're being asked to experience it on a very gut level. One of the pieces I was in two people who were in like a diving bell and the thing had gone down to the bottom. They were there to observe the fish and all that kind of stuff. And they realized it's not going to go back up. And, you know, there was no diving bell and we were walking around with flippers on as if if we could escape, we could swim out of there and all that. But in the meantime, you know, there's no air and we're slowly dying. And it was very, very powerful. And somebody said, what's the story? It's like, well, some people die in a diving bell. (laughs) And that was did, but the audience came away from it. Some of them were saying to us after the show, like, I had a hard time breathing watching that. I really felt what you were doing, and it was trying to get oxygen, oh, you know, and yeah. you know, they were only like five feet away from us. I think when you do theater at that level, then the intellectual stuff can happen in the car ride home. Yeah. I don't know that you want people intellectualizing while they're watching the show. Not at all. And that's the other thing I tell my students is, look, you know, they start worrying about things like theme, and I'm like, look, 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 If there's any sense of the audience experiencing theme, it's going to happen after the show is over. It's a secondary affect. Don't, I don't want you worrying about that. Tell stories and let the meaning of the story happen to the audience as a later thing, because in reality, even if you had your characters shouting at the audience, the theme of this is that trees are nice. You could have them shouted a thousand times. And the audience would still walk out, and if you polled them, some of them would say, well, I thought it was about love. (laughs) I mean, because they have a very subjective experience. I don't want my writers worrying about that. What I really, really, really push them hard about all the time is write in such a way that the audience feels like they are a partner in the story, that they have to stay involved, that they've got to really pay attention, that they are not being told a story, but they're being shown a story. They're being able to experience a story. And then you're getting writing that is exciting, and it tends to keep them away from having plays that are set like in race cars and stuff like that. Do you ever come across a student and you feel like, this student has a story, and they need to tell it? How do you encourage that person? Because I know you've you've had students like that, and I know they've been inspired by you. Basically, I'm saying, listen, you're getting onto something here, and I can tell that you're either feeling a little shy about it, or you feel exposed. But what I really want you to understand is that when you give that story out, that there are any number of people who are going to relate to it and go, oh my God, I didn't know other people felt like that. 
My job is to really encourage them to take the risk that's involved in it. And that's not easy. You know, I mean, these we're talking about latter age adolescents. You know, most of the people I teach are under 25. So their brains are still developing. Their social skills are still evolving. Their sense of who they are, you know, and I always, I always get them nervous at some point. I just did it this past week, in fact, last Thursday. And each class I said, okay, repeat after me. I am an artist. <laughs> if, you, if you're willing to accept that as a given, that you are an artist, then what you're able to then go about doing as a writer is take those chances to explore your own reality and find ways of bringing that forward into a play and not worry about it being judged, but worry simply about, have I given this my full capacity as an artist? You're looking to encourage your students to tell the truth. Yeah, exactly. And to tell the truth in their own voice. And that's that's the hardest thing is to get them to understand that they don't have to write like anybody else. I try not to have them read people who they would immediately start wanting to emulate. Mm-hmm. I'd say probably the person whose work I was influenced by the most in that regard, directing and also doing a bit of acting and, and also seeing some amazing production, it was Sam Shepard, may he rest, because I think he's certainly the playwright of our generation. Alvi was a little bit of an earlier generation, but Sam Shepard was right there in with us in the 60s and 70s, you know. True West just rocked my world. I never quite got over that scene with the golf club. If you feel like being a little envious, I got to see the Steppenwolf production of that in New York. I got to see it with with Malkovich and Sinisi. Yeah, yeah, I am a little bit jealous, I will tell you. (laughs) I just told this story today. I was in New York. I fell in with some people who said, you know, let's have a playwrights group that includes actors and directors. And I said, that's perfect, because I was looking, I was a director, I was looking for scripts. So we formed this thing that became named the New York Writers Block. And uh, I was trying to write a little bit. I was excited by the writers I was around. I was around Donald Margulies and Jeffrey Sweet and Jane Anderson. So, you know, and they were all, this is all when they were very young. We're talking about in the in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So I was struggling. I was trying to kind of write like them. And finally, one day I thought, you know what? They're all from urban environments. Not me. I grew up in a suburb. Uh, they're all from pretty different world backgrounds than mine. And I, I just, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing trying to write like them. And then I saw Apocalypse Now was previewing in New York, didn't even have titles. They were just showing it to whoever felt like showing up, had heard of the movie, come on in, watch the movie. And I came away from that feeling so crazy and violent. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do with it. And I went home and I just sat down at my typewriter and said, I'm going to write the most violent thing I can think of. And it was a fight that I saw in a pool hall that I hung out in as a kid. And suddenly I realized I'm writing in my Baltimore voice, which is my most native voice. And I'm writing in my own sense of experiences. And all of a sudden, I was like, I am a playwright. (laughs) So I can't tell you how thrilled I was because I had been so frustrated up to that point, you know, trying to write like like Shepard and Williams and, you know, all the people I admired and just getting nowhere. And then thanks to the Vietnam War, you know, I found my voice, you know. Right. I see kids now struggling. They've grown up in the post-9-11 era. And I'm seeing so much of this next generation coming up. They just have a darkness about them. Is there a trend or is that just what people do when they're 19, 20, 21? 
I think it's what they do. I mean, when I was teaching playwriting at St. John's University in the 80s, and then again teaching playwriting in El Paso in the 90s, I, I ran into the same stuff. What I find that's fascinating is some of them have that darkness that's really quite legitimate, and, and some of them just have it as a pose. But what I find that's amusing is that a lot of them are, they like to pretend how sophisticated and above it all they are, but they're actually deeply romantic. And so, you know, they write these love stories and I'm like, I figured you out. (laughs) That's exactly what I'm seeing. They're not commenting on anything dark. They're just, they're romanticizing. Sound like I'm putting it down, but I think it may be a rite of passage. Mm -hmm. There's a couple things. One is, I have two books. One's called Playwriting in Process and the other's called Playwriting Masterclass. The playwriting in process is what I call etudes to explore and develop characters and plots by just, you know, playing and seeing what's there and not trying to force things into some particular set model. A playwriting masterclass is written by seven playwrights, and I gave them a prompt, which is there's a key in an envelope in a drawer. Write a short play based on that, but also give me all of your notes. Keep a journal. Keep all your rewrites. Just give me all of the stuff that you did to get there, and I'll figure out a way to put it into a book. And once I had all their materials together, I was like, oh, my gosh, two people work from dreams. (laughs) I had no idea. One's a Chinese woman and the other's a Jewish guy from New York and teaches in the Midwest. You know, it's a chance to read people's voices, but also to kind of look over their shoulder and watch their process and understand that it's very much an individual thing. So there's that. I think the other is to talk to people a lot about what Heller has been doing by having a resident playwright, by having someone who is willing to be there and to teach people in the community about creating original work. Their, I don't know what year this is, let's say it's the maybe the ninth or tenth year of their Heller shorts. They've commissioned me and Blakely to write one act for next year. Both my playwright kids got their start in the youth program, the youth playwriting program there. Right, exactly. I think the big problem is that active theaters tend to put new work as just a little, like a little bonus for their subscribers. And so it's kind of you know, what they do in the off-season or around the season and in the black box. But I understand not wanting to lose money on original work, so there's that. I think community theaters typically suffer from too many people who are involved in community theater thinking that, well, this is just, I'm just doing this to have fun and leaving it at that and not understanding that, you know, they're making art, so why not make original art? The thing that we're finding is that when you do things like that, you grow the theater community in a way that doesn't steal from other companies. It grows everybody's audiences. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. 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 Thank you again so much. Is there anything else that you can think of that you didn't get to mention? Uh, The only other thing is uh, this program that I have called Women Works. That's to encourage people who may be affiliated with a college or university. I specifically reach out to graduate programs around the country in, in playwriting and seek female playwrights only. It doesn't matter whether they're returning students or whether they just have to be in a graduate degree program. And the assignment or the request, the call for scripts is to write something or to, to submit something that has either majority or total female cast. Once they send their stuff in, then we adjudicate and we choose one person and we bring them to our campus for a week. We workshop their 
play, they meet with classes, they present a workshop, and then we do two nights of reading. Sometimes I'll double up the cast so that they get to hear two entirely different casts doing a reading of their play. You know, so it's, you know, I call it a win-win-win because the playwright wins, the actors get to work with the living playwright, the audience gets to see new work. All of that stuff is, I think, you know, not that difficult to do. It's not that expensive, really, for a university. Well, Michael, thank you so much for taking time out. Sure, Shelley. It's now time for Concise Advice from the Interview. A short version of tips from my guest, Michael Wright. Get up, get up. Today, I have nine bits of advice for directors, performers, and playwrights. Number nine, playwriting includes play, play with words, ideas, and presentation. Number eight, experiment with non-traditional performance spaces. Number seven, learn something from every experience. Number six, on stage, life can be represented through metaphor. Number five, accept that you are an artist. Number four, explore your reality and find ways to bring it forward into a performance. Number three, tell the truth in your own voice. Number two, follow your instinct. And the number one piece of advice from my guest Michael Wright is take a risk. That's it for concise advice from the interview. Next week, I'll be interviewing the coolest guy on the planet, my husband, George Nelson, about getting performing arts experience at the local level. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sally, and this is Sally Pal. The P-A-L in Pal stands for Performing Arts Lab. Y'all check out my blog for articles and podcast episodes. Sign up to get a free production notebook insert. Go to sallypal.com. You have been so supportive. I can't believe there are 15 episodes now. If not for your encouragement, I wouldn't have made it this far. Thank you for sharing and especially thank you for listening. I want to encourage you to pursue your dream to have your original work on the stage in front of a live audience. It's scary. But I'll be here with advice, encouragement, and a growing community of people like us. Like Sally Pal if you like, but more importantly, share, subscribe, and join the mailing list. A new podcast goes out almost every Monday evening. Now, I just have one bit of wisdom from George, my husband, the coolest guy on the planet. George, what's your wisdom for today? Look both ways when you cross the street and be careful out there. Thank you, George. That is excellent advice indeed. (laughs) Remember, all the performances you've seen on stage once lived only in someone's imagination. Now it's your turn. Thanks again for listening. If you're downloading and listening on your drive to work or falling asleep to my tasteful late-night programs like my sister does, let me know you're listening. I want to help you learn to produce and direct original shows for a live audience. It's what I do, and you can too.
Whoops. Whoops. Let's try that one more time, shall we? Can you hear Charlie snoring in the background? I knew. But I'm very photogenic. What can I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are. I am a playwright. <laughs> <laughs>